This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is Steve Ball, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of a widely used introductory Greek primer and reader in 1 John. And among other things, he's contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, bookstore.wscal.edu. Okay, Steve, you can take only five books to this desert island. Which five books are you taking and why? Wow, no bookstores? I can take five books. Five books. Is it a deserted island? It's a desert island. So I'm the only one there? You are by yourself and you have five books. Well, here's the deal. I've got to have my Greek New Testament. Does that count as a book? If you want it to count, it does. Okay, let's just say this is an island star with coconuts and other essentials like fresh water and the Greek and Hebrew Bible. Okay? Those are, you know, those are the three essentials, coconuts, water, and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic Bible. Okay, so that's assumed because I got to have my Greek New Testament, and I would glance at the Hebrew and Aramaic. But I'd really like my Septuagint as part of that package. <laughs> Maybe it's inside one of the coconuts. All right. So we're negotiating. So now you want you want eight books because you don't want to burn any of your five with the uh, oh, no, I don't. No, no. <laughs> but I've got to have those. Okay. So five books beyond scripture. Okay. Because this is the deal. Assuming that you're going to be there a while, you've got to have books you want to reread. Yes. Those are the books I want to reread. Yes. Because I love to read the scripture in the original. That's what I do, and I love to read it. Sometimes people see me reading the Greek New Testament and think I'm showing off or, you know, they don't know why I'm doing that. I'm doing it because I love it. And it's, it's just for fun. But, you know, way back when, when I was in college, I took Greek simply because I wanted to read the New Testament in Greek. That's it. That's all I wanted to do. I never imagined I'd teach it or teach Greek or anything. So that being said, I've got to have my Bauer, Donker, and Gingrich because I have my Greek New Testament. This is not the sort of thing that all of your listeners are going to want to buy, but it's what I would want. Okay, explain what Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, yeah, and Bauer, Donker. It's BDAG. BDAG. Bauer, Donker, Arndt, and Gingrich. It's a uh, huge lexicon, of a dictionary of the Greek New Testament and other early Christian literature. And it's just a treasure trove of about 200 years of research into the words and phrases and meaning of the Greek New Testament and other early Christian documents. And even if I only had that lexicon, I could piece together quite a bit of the New Testament from what they quote or refer to. So I guess that counts as my first one. Again, this is not something your listeners would you know, immediately gravitate to off their shelf, but that's what I thought of. The second one will make you happy, Professor Clark, with your history and all of our conversations over the years. It would be uh, Herman Witsius' Economy of the Covenants between God and Man. Is that the full title? It's a two-volume work from roughly the 1650s. You can fill in on that because you're the expert. But I still remember reading that book and just being tremendously edified. And it's a book that I think would repay rereading. I would also, because I have lots of time, I would edit the book and produce a one volume out of the two. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's a valuable point, actually, because one of the things that makes it difficult sometimes for people to pick up and read a Witsius is the fact that it is two volumes. Mm-hmm. It is an older translation. Mm-hmm. It is a little unfamiliar. I remember the first time I tried to read it when it first was reprinted in recent years in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, That was a challenge, mm-hmm. even though I had some familiarity with texts from that period. It was still somewhat challenging. Oh, yeah. What exactly is it about that text that attracts you? Well, that's a good question because... As you say, it's one where, you know, a reader would have to work at first to really be engaged in that book. It's big. The translation is a little rough at times. But it is a tremendous resource. In particular, Witsius was mediating different people of his day who were having theological debates. And he was trying to negotiate his way through all this with a solid grasp of biblical teaching, as well as to... uh, appropriate the truths that he saw from the various groups in their debates. He was a kind of mediator and all of that, but he's a very sound guy. He strikes me as a very likable guy and a very pastoral, devoted servant of Christ. And so you, you end up just being edified by this pastor, but he's dealing with some very deep and rich theological truths. And I just remember being tremendously edified by that book, and I want to reread it several times. And it focuses on? Well, it focuses really on the whole teaching of Scripture, and particularly Reformed theology. It's a kind of foundation for Reformed theology and our understanding of covenant theology. But you see, for us, covenant theology is just a way to organize the teaching of Scripture. It's not a thing in itself. It's an avenue for seeing the teaching of Scripture and giving it an overall organization. It's how I see it, anyway. And Witsius finds covenant in Scripture, right? It's not something that he, in his mind, was inventing and then bringing to Scripture as a way of explaining it. It was something he was drawing out of Scripture that was being presented to him. Yeah, if you want biblical warrant for that, Paul in uh, Ephesians 2 says that Gentiles before the coming of Christ were strangers from the covenants of promise. And that's covenant theology right there. He invents that term in order to organize all of the Old Testament covenants, and he assigns them as having the nature of promise. And that's what we're doing in covenant theology. So there's really good warrant for that whole approach. And I just found it edifying and stimulating. So that's one I would want to reread. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Okay, so you have your dictionary. Yeah. And you have your... My Greek dictionary. Your basic biblical... Theology, in a sense, your Reformed Biblical Theology, Herman Witsius from the 17th century. What's your third volume? Well, it would be a book I don't actually own, (laughs) so maybe I can borrow your copy. Maybe you can put it on the raft that I, uh, (laughs) if I'm going soon, please get it to my raft soon. It's uh, Schaff, Creeds of Christendom. And what that is is a collection. It's three volumes, right? Well, to count as one volume, we'd have to combine it. So maybe we'll stitch it together with coconut fronds. It's a collection of creeds going back to the scripture all the way covering really his day, which was 19th century, so the 1800s. But the various creeds of the church, he uh, gives you the original language and then a translation. And, you know, I wanted to see the original of some of these things. Sometimes the translations today are not the greatest, so you'd want to look at that. But the thing about creeds is people think, well, you know, human teaching. Well, yeah, but like Witsius that I just mentioned, it's a way to present 
biblical teaching. It's a way to summarize and distill on certain topics biblical teaching. I just think they're very edifying to read. They're often very succinct, so you tend to just read them quickly. But if you go back over them and really study them, you see there's a lot of thought put into the brevity of summarizing complex doctrines in a very brief and helpful way. I just think it's something I've never done yet, and on my deserted island holiday, I would like to do this. And the good news is that all of these volumes that you've mentioned so far are available through the bookstore. Yeah. At Westminster Seminary, California, and bookstore.wscal.edu. So, in fact, when we're done with this discussion, you can just wander over to the bookstore. And I will. And pick up I'm your own get copy Schaff, of, yeah. of Schaff, because you'll take mine when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> okay. Yeah, see, it's my taste and yours uh, coincide there. Schaff is valuable for so many reasons, and it really hasn't been superseded, even though there have been more contemporary, more modern versions of the creeds that have been published. I'm thinking of Yaroslav Pelikan oh, yeah. produced a comprehensive collection, which is a quite nice collection, but I still think that there's a place for Schaff, even though some of it may be a little dated, but it covers everything from the early church through various medieval documents and Reformation and post-Reformation documents. And these are all ecclesiastical documents, too, which takes them beyond the work of private persons. Right. And uh, particularly when we're talking about the Catholic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon, those have a sort of Catholic universal authority that are endorsed, believed, accepted, received by all churches, all Christians, and all times and all places. That is precisely what attracted me to this, is because when I was originally thinking of your question, because my deserted island trip wasn't just throw a few books that I happened to have on the ship that, as it's sinking into my rowboat, I had thought about having a collection of uh, early church fathers, and I think that would be like you know my sixth or seventh pick. And I really love reading those guys. So recently in a class, we read the works of an early church father called Ignatius of Antioch. And it was just really tremendous. But it's not like a creed. I mean, he's trying to establish teaching in the churches, but he didn't have that kind of refined, finished product of a creed where people had really cooperatively put together their understanding of the teaching of Scripture. You have two more books left, and we'll find out what those books are right after this. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Okay, so we're on the desert island. You're allowed five books on this island until you're rescued. We've heard numbers one through three. Your Greek-English Dictionary, Herman Witsius' Economy of the Covenants, Schaff's Creeds of Christendom. What's the fourth work that you want with you on the desert island? Uh, the fourth work is one that's just my personal favorite, and it's the shorter writings of Gerhardus Voss. The title is actually Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation. It's a rather large collection of his shorter academic writings primarily. 
And if you're not familiar with Gerhardus Voss, he was a uh, Bible interpreter and held the first chair of biblical theology at Princeton in the uh, early 20th century. And the thing about this book is I assign quite a number of these essays in my classes because they're just gems of biblical interpretation. And I think that's what it is. Foss is known for the discipline of biblical theology, and rightly so. He really helped pioneer and lay down the lines of how we think of biblical theology today in the Reformed world. But the thing that makes that all so powerful to me is that he was just a prince of exegetes. He just had tremendous insight into the scriptures, and when he starts working through biblical texts, you can just see a master at work, and I think it's just edifying to watch him work and to reflect upon his conclusions and the help he brings in uh, understanding the biblical texts that he deals with. So I just want to read and reread that. What is it particularly about Voss's work that attracts you? There has been, in the history of the Church, a large number, a great number, of brilliant, insightful biblical exegetes. And so out of that great mass, you've selected um, late 19th century, early 20th century Dutchman who taught in Grand Rapids at what became Calvin Seminary and then later at Princeton Theological Seminary until his retirement. And you've called him a prince of exegetes. But what is it about his work or the way he handles scripture that makes him a prince, that makes him so attractive to you that you want to take his collection of shorter writings with you onto the desert island? Well, it's because I didn't think I could bring all of Calvin's commentaries. I mean, I only had five books I could choose. (laughs) Calvin, of course, the whole commentary series would be the way to get it. But the thing about Calvin's commentaries is he was really not doing the same thing that Voss was. And let me explain. Calvin was sometimes pressured by peers to write these things, his commentaries, because he had this ability to very succinctly and clearly bring out the biblical text, but he doesn't expand on them as he could. He felt like that's what he had to offer, is something very lucid and very uh, somewhat succinct. So in other words, brief. Uh, I know when you look at his whole collection, I mean, it's just huge, but each one is really a rather brief comment in comparison. But Voss didn't have that constraint. Some of these were academic articles. Some of them were adapted classroom material that he did. And he'll go into greater detail and depth on certain issues. And the other thing about Voss is he's writing at a time where many of the things that Calvin was pioneering had been taken by people like Witsius or other later Reformed authors and really refined and seen more clearly how they had relate to Scripture and seen the inherent organization principles of Scripture. And Voss can take advantage of that work. So he's standing on the shoulders of the forefathers, and he's building on that. Whereas Calvin's really pioneering in many ways— So that's why I was attracted to him. And, um, you know, I would say also just personally, I mean, this is a personal list. It's not that I'm recommending everybody join me on my desert island. They might not like these books as well as I do. And then it wouldn't be desert or deserted. Oh, that's true. They wouldn't be. It would be a communal island. Uh, The thing about that book is I just have a personal connection with Voss. I still remember reading him for the first time very clearly back in the 1980, I think. (laughs) I still remember sitting in the chair and reading him, and it was like electricity to me because I was thinking, I have no idea what this guy is saying, but it's really interesting. (laughs) Do you have an idea now of what he was saying? Yeah, I do, actually. (laughs) So what was he saying? 
He was saying that Scripture has essential unity, and the unity is centered on Christ, and the whole Scripture is a story of him from Genesis to Revelation. But it's not a story that's static in the sense of you have this pristine, systematic theology portrayed in Genesis, and then the same thing said again in Deuteronomy, and the same thing said again in Isaiah. The same way. The same way. But instead, you have a core unity that's built up. And the image he uses is, it's built up like an acorn to a full oak tree. So from Genesis to Revelation, you have this growth of God's revelation, where things get clearer, they get more mature in a sense, he explains more. This is what he identifies as both redemptive history and biblical theology, that it's a discipline where you're studying that growth So you don't have different theologies sort of thrown together under these different books, but instead you have a true organic growth of biblical truth because God tells a story from Genesis to Revelation. And Voss understood that, and when he's dealing with the text, he's dealing with it in light of that you know, where you're at in the story. And that's really important as an interpreter. Often people get into trouble because they forget where you're at in the text, in the stream of uh, biblical revelation. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. All right, so we're down to your last volume that you're taking with you to your desert island. Well, this is really going to throw everybody off because it has nothing to do with the Bible exactly. But it's the best book I ever read in the sense of the best written book and one that I just found tremendously stimulating for my own interests, and that was H.I. Maru, History of Education and Antiquity. Now let me explain. Uh, Maru was interested in Christian history, so he had interest in the history of the church and wrote on that, but he also was an ancient historian, which is my training in ancient history. And the thing about this that was so stimulating is in France, where he was writing, the ideal for a scholar was to write all of your scholarly kind of technical work earlier in your career. But at the end, to cap off your career, you summarize all that you've learned in a popular book written for a more general audience. It was kind of the ideal. This is how it was explained to me. And this is his work to do that. So he's explained to a broader audience the results of a lifetime of research in these areas. Now, it was just tremendously well-written. It was just a delight to read. What is it that makes it so well-written? Well, he writes in a very wonderful style. It is translated, but it even comes through in the English. He's just a very clear, profound writer. Now, the topic was of interest for me because he also does talk about the development of Christian education, and that was of interest, as well as just the history of education, which, as an educator, I'm interested in. I want to know where the roots are of the education I'm a part of, as well as how it's developed. But I think part of it, too, was something I've been utilizing more in New Testament studies, an appreciation for the educational background of the New Testament authors, you know, how they would have been educated, how their letters embody that result of that education. So, for example, they tend to have a more oral kind of training, so they're writing to be heard rather than read word by word in piecemeal. But rather, you should uh, appreciate the composition of their works are... uh, meant to be heard, and he starts you out on that road really well. It's just a book I could reread several times just for the delight of it. 
But then uh, I want you to know that this is not a completely deserted island in the sense that it's still part of the uh, Pacific Ocean, I trust. And there's a current. And what happens is there's a uh, raft that appears one day and comes up on my shore. And this raft has the complete works of Herman Bovink, which have recently been translated. And uh, I still remember reading Bovink, and I'd like to read more of him. I read him in seminary, you know, many years ago, and he's just a very stimulating author. But that takes me beyond my five, so I can't even talk about it. (laughs) But the raft comes, and there he is, so I'm happier. Well, maybe you could put one of your selections on the raft and send it back whence it came, and and you could stay within the limit. So since you've introduced Bovink onto your island, what is it about Bovink that— Well, he he writes systematic theology, which is uh, not an area I'm strongest in. I don't read a lot of systematic theology. But he's just always got a kind of a unique, interesting slant on certain topics that makes you think about the whole issue more carefully. And it's never stale or sort of dry. He's a very lively writer, but it's that slant. I mean, he has this way of looking at things that pushes you to look at things in a new way that you may already be familiar with. So I I really like that about Bob Inc. in particular. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.